Where was Jesus between Good Friday and Easter Sunday? Did he descend into hell, as some people believe? Well, the belief that Jesus descended into hell comes to us primarily from the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is often said out loud in church services and has been an important part of Christian worship since well before 400 A.D. It goes like this. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, the term Catholic in the Apostles' Creed simply means universal, referring to the universal church. But that's not the question we want to focus on. Many have wondered whether or not we can affirm the end of the fourth line, which teaches that Jesus descended into hell. Well, in fact... The earliest versions of the creed did not include this phrase. As Wayne Grudem has noted, The phrase, he descended into hell, was not found in any of the early versions of the creed until it appeared in one of two versions from Rufinus in A.D. 390. Then it is not included again in any version of the creed until 650. Moreover, Rufinus did not think that it meant that Christ descended into hell, but understood the phrase simply to mean that Christ was buried. Well, that's important context, but even so, most Christians who recite the Apostles' Creed are familiar with this phrase being included. And so the most important questions at hand are these. Did Jesus really descend into hell after dying on the cross? Can we support this idea based on Scripture? If not, what should we do about reciting the Apostles' Creed as it currently stands? Well, at the foundation of these questions is a larger question about Scripture and tradition. If scriptural evidence for a creedal affirmation is lacking, should we continue reciting it just simply for tradition's sake? Well, I'm going to attempt to demonstrate that the scriptural support for retaining this phrase is weak, and that because of this, believers should consider omitting this phrase when we recite the Apostles' Creed. But first, let me put out a couple of disclaimers. Disclaimer number one, I am not by any means anti-creeds or confessions. Quite the opposite, in fact. I think they're incredibly valuable. Even so, our theological studies must always begin with and be checked against the authority of Scripture. Disclaimer number two, I do not think that I am more theologically sound than those who formulated the Apostles' Creed or those who defend the phrase, He descended into hell. In fact, I'll include links to some resources of those who disagree with the conclusion that I'm going to reach. We're going to consider several possible interpretations of this phrase and compare them to Scripture. Doing so helps us see if the various understandings of He descended into hell match up with what the Bible teaches. As I'll try to show, arguments in favor of retaining He descended into hell are not strong enough to overcome the lack of scriptural evidence. So let's evaluate some common understandings of the phrase, he descended into hell. 
Option one is very straightforward. It simply means that Jesus suffered in hell for a short time. The most natural understanding of this phrase would be that Jesus suffered in hell. But this would be a great misunderstanding of the creedal affirmation. The creed is not saying that Jesus suffered on our behalf in the lake of fire. Such an interpretation would not stand given the biblical evidence against it. Jesus' words that it is finished in John 19.30 could hardly be read as, okay, now comes the hard part. Secondly, this understanding would be anachronistic. The actual term used is not hell as we think of it today, but the Greek word Hades, which is the place of the dead. As Herman Bovink notes, The statement that Christ had descended into Hades could emerge only at a time when this word still denoted the world after death in general and had not yet acquired the meaning of hell. For the idea that Christ had descended to the place of torment, the actual hell, is nowhere to be found in Scripture, nor does it occur in the most ancient Christian writers. So here's our first conclusion is Christ did not descend into hell as we think of it today. Still, the question remains whether this phrase teaches that Jesus descended into Hades, meaning the place of the dead. So let's consider option two. The phrase simply emphasizes Jesus' death. So if the word hell is better understood as Hades, does this phrase simply emphasize the fact that Jesus died? Well, the Westminster Catechism teaches that the phrase says Jesus continued in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day. But this conclusion actually has several problems. First, adding he descended into hell does not make Jesus' death more clear, but less so. Calvin argued, How careless it would have been, when something not at all difficult in itself has been stated with clear and easy words, to indicate it again in words that obscure rather than clarify it. Secondly, the repetition would be uncharacteristic of the Apostles' Creed, which is remarkably concise. Lastly, Jesus' death is already stated three different ways. He was crucified, died, and was buried. So the second conclusion I reach is that further emphasis that Jesus died is unnecessary. It is doubtful that this view accounts for the inclusion of the phrase, He descended into hell. Let's look at option number three. Christ's soul literally descended into Hades. Hades not only indicates the state of being dead, but the place of the dead. There are two different reasons given for why he would have gone there. First, to bring back the souls of Old Testament believers who had already died. Or, secondly, to declare victory over Satan. Let's consider that first point, to liberate Old Testament believers. Some believe Christ descended into Hades to free the souls of Old Testament saints who died before the cross. This is the view of the Roman Catholic Church. Catholics teach that Jesus did not descend into hell to deliver the damned, nor to destroy the hell of damnation, but to free the just who had gone before him. Thomas Aquinas was of similar mind. He wrote, When Christ descended into hell, he freed those who were detained there for the sin of our first parent but left behind those who were being punished for their own sins. These views read 1 Peter 3, 18-20 as saying that Christ preached to at least some of the souls who were in Hades. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, 
eight persons were brought safely through water. There are, however, several issues in using this passage as a proof text for this claim. First, the audience mentioned is limited to those who did not obey during the time of Noah when he was building the ark. It's difficult to see how Christ preaching to this very specific group of people could be expanded as liberating all Old Testament saints from the realm of the dead and bringing them to heaven. Given the greater context of 1 Peter, the more natural interpretation of this verse is that Jesus preached in the Spirit through Noah, the preacher of righteousness, as 2 Peter 2.5 calls him. As Bobbing states, Before his incarnation, Christ, speaking in the Spirit through Noah, preached the gospel to his contemporaries and admonished them to repent. Also, many passages in Scripture indicate that those saved before Christ's coming would already be in heaven. Check out Psalm 23.6, Ecclesiastes 12.7. Romans 4, 1 to 3, Hebrews 11, 10, and 12, verse 23. So the conclusion I reach is that in light of Scripture, this view is severely weakened. Old Testament believers were not in some sort of prison within Hades waiting to be liberated. Still, there remains another possible purpose for Christ to descend into Hades, and that would be to claim victory over Satan. The Lutheran formula of Concord teaches that Christ went to hell, destroyed hell for all believers, and has redeemed them from the power of death, of the devil, and of the eternal damnation of the hellish jaws. Well, by this view, Jesus descended to hell to declare his victory over Satan. And of course, Jesus did defeat Satan, but scripture does not say that he descended into Hades in order to do so. In addition to the passage in 1 Peter 3, some point to Ephesians 4, verses 8 to 10, as evidence that Christ descended into hell for such a purpose. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? However, as Boving states, The descent into the lower parts of the earth, of which Paul speaks in Ephesians 4, 9, seems by virtue of the contrast with his ascension to point to Christ's incarnation, in the course of which he descended from heaven to earth. Paul's figure of speech speaks of Christ coming to earth from heaven, not of Christ descending into hell from earth. This is reflected by the ESV, which renders the verse as, he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. So my third conclusion is that the view that Jesus descended into hell, either to declare his victory or to free believers in prison there, lacks biblical warrant. Well, let's consider the fourth option, which is that the phrase he descended into hell simply describes the agony of the cross. The view of many Reformed theologians matches the Heidelberg Catechism, which suggests that the phrase he descended into hell is meant to convey his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross. John Calvin likewise believed that this creedal affirmation indicated the severity of God's vengeance to appease his wrath and satisfy his just judgment. In short, this position argues that the phrase he descended into hell is descriptive of Jesus' suffering during his crucifixion. And this seems to be a reasonable conclusion. After all, Scripture does sometimes speak of synonyms for hell to signify agony. Look at Psalm 116, verse 3, where it reads, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Consider 1 Samuel 2, 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. 
he brings down to Sheol and raises up. Well, Christ did suffer extreme anguish on the cross, and this could be described as experiencing hell. While this is logically sound, it's difficult to see this as being the original intent of the phrase. The wording of the creed that Jesus descended into hell suggests a location. If the original intent of the phrase was to describe Christ's experience on the cross, there are certainly clearer ways it could have done so. The second issue urged against this view is that it changes the order of events. The Apostles' Creed states he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. This entire section of the creed is in chronological order, and to suggest that this phrase describes events before it is doubtful. So my fourth conclusion is that given the lack of scriptural support and questions about original intent, it is difficult to reach the conclusion that this phrase describes the agony of the cross. So where was Jesus between his death and resurrection? Well, we're not left in the dark about Jesus' whereabouts after his death and before his resurrection. First, we read in Luke 23:43 that Jesus stated to the thief on the cross that today you will be with me in paradise. Some equate paradise with Abraham's bosom of Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, which they identify as being a compartment of comfort in Hades rather than the section of torment. However, this understanding of the afterlife is very disputed. The word paradise in Greek occurs only two other times in the New Testament. That is 2 Corinthians 12, 4 and Revelation 2, 7. In both instances, it refers to heaven or a transcendent place of blessedness. Secondly, Jesus declared, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit in Luke 23:46, which indicates that Jesus went to be with the Father. My conclusion is that after his death, Jesus' spirit went to be with the Father in paradise, that is heaven, and after three days, his spirit was reunited with his body at the resurrection. So in conclusion, a descent into hell by Jesus cannot be conclusively established by Scripture. Though we should be cautious when setting aside even a portion of a historic creed of the church, we must be much more cautious when affirming a doctrine which Scripture itself does not explicitly contain. As we've seen, the most natural understanding of the phrase, that Jesus suffered in hell between his death and resurrection, is demonstrably false, and there are very few who teach that. Viewing this phrase as either an emphasis of Christ's death or as a liberation of souls from Hades lacks conclusive biblical evidence. Seeing this phrase as figurative is less problematic, but seems to go against the original intent of the phrase. I believe that teaching Jesus descended into hell in spite of a lack of evidence risks creating a biblical doctrine to fit a creed rather than forming a creed to reflect biblical doctrine. Ultimately, our goal is not to read Scripture through the lens of a creed, but to ensure that our creeds accurately reflect the teachings of Scripture. So, given all of this, what are we to do with the phrase, He descended into hell, when it comes to the Apostles' Creed? Should we omit the phrase when we recite it? Well, we've examined several arguments in support of the creed's teaching that Christ descended into hell. As we have seen, even the best interpretations of this phrase have significant problems and very little biblical support. And we're left with a part of the creed which is possibly incorrect and definitely creates a fair bit of confusion. And for those who agree that Jesus did not descend into hell, there are a couple of options on how you can proceed. Option one, replacing the word hell with Hades, which better reflects the historical meaning of the word 
This would help prevent people from thinking that Jesus suffered in hell before his resurrection, but using the more unfamiliar Greek word Hades would not eliminate confusion. If anything, it would simply add to it and still imply that Jesus went to hell. The second option is to skip the phrase, he descended into hell, when reciting the Apostles' Creed. This would eliminate confusion and keep us from affirming something Scripture does not clearly teach. Of these two options, I personally prefer the second one. I believe that we should omit the phrase, he descended into hell, when we recite the Apostles' Creed. I hope you found that helpful and interesting, even if you've come to a different conclusion. Hopefully this helps you consider more deeply what it is we are affirming when we recite the Apostles' Creed and giving you reason to return to Scripture to examine what you believe. If you'd like to see some additional resources on this topic, including from those who believe that we should keep the phrase, He descended into hell, as well as those who agree that we should skip the phrase when reciting the Apostles' Creed, check out reasonabletheology.org. I'll include links to that below, and I hope you find it helpful. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the Reasonable Theology podcast, go to reasonabletheology.org slash subscribe and get the weekly email. Each week I send out the latest article or podcast episode, and each email also includes a helpful definition to expand your theological vocabulary, a beautiful painting depicting a scene from scripture or church history, a musical selection to enrich your day, as well as the best book deal I've found that week to add trusted resources to your library. Try it out at reasonabletheology.org slash subscribe.